Well, good morning again, everybody. Hope that your week has gone well. I'm glad that you're here today. Today, we're going to be continuing uh, our new sermon series, looking at how to keep in step with the Spirit. And we're going to be taking a closer look at the will of God. If you recall, or if you weren't here last week, uh, we began to uh, talk about the life of a believer and the Spirit's role within that. Um, we looked at Romans 12, the first two verses, and how we are to be living sacrifices who are transformed, discerning the will of God. And as I said, I was running out of time a little bit, and to really hit the will of God part as hard as I would want, so we're going to be talking about and focusing on those sections today in Scripture that explicitly say, for this is the will of God, to give us a better understanding of those parts of Scripture. Of course, again, it's not going to be an exhaustive list in terms of what the will of God is, but just focusing on those specific sections. Um, and we're going to be doing more of an annotated reading of that today. So we're going to be going through the passages as we read them. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's going to be the first one that we address today. If you don't have Bibles, there's some pew Bibles, or there's some Bibles in my office as well. Um, we're not going to use the slides today. Let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, as we take this walk through your word, I pray against any anxiety or fear that the enemy might be putting on our hearts and minds, and that you would just give us your strength, your wisdom, and your understanding. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to focus on the first eight or so verses. Um, just reading the first couple of verses here to start off. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do, uh, do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So as this is starting off, it's, um, it's near the end of his letter, um, and he is still offering encouragement to the Thessalonians. He is emphasizing this urging, this ask in Christ Jesus, that they continue to do what they've been doing, and then more so, continuing to follow the instructions that he gave them when he was there with them. People are doing that now, and he's praying that all the more they would be doing this. Um, and then as it says in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You know, that's the phrasing that we're going to be focusing on today, those areas of Scripture that says this is the will of God. And we touched on this a little bit last week in terms of how we view sanctification and how important that is. And I think throughout the messages, I'm going to continue to give us little chunks of sanctification to help us understand, to chew on through the week, to help us grow. You know, because sanctification, it's one of those big terms. And when we think about our faith, there's a lot of different terms, such as salvation, justification, regeneration, glorification, sanctification. How do we understand what these terms mean? You know, sanctification literally means holiness. Um, where, where we are understanding then how this word points us to the image of Christ, who was holy, and we are being made into his image. 
I think of the different verses. Um, at the end of Matthew 5, Jesus says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect, which calls us back to Leviticus, which says, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. This idea of perfection, this idea of holiness, um, and then you throw in the being or the be to denote essence of, of who we are supposed to be, who we are growing into. Perfect in the sense of living out that state of what we are called. Um, you know, it, it leads us to a better understanding of maturity in our faith. So our lives should reflect a holiness, a maturity. Uh, it's something that is called for by Paul in numerous places in his letters. Growth, maturity, holiness, it's an expectation for a believer. It's not one of those casual things that, yeah, I can put that on or take that off. It is what we are called to be, holy. Obviously, it's not perfected in the sense that glorification means when we are reunited with Christ, but it is something that we live into. Now, there's a lot, again, with this term, and we're going to unpack it a little bit each week, beginning to understand the holiness that we are through the justification, through the presence of God dwelling in us, through being called his temple, living out what the scriptures says that we are. Because again, so many of the issues, so many of the problems that we face in our life deals with our thought process, deals with our minds. And I don't want this to come across as, well, this is a self-help type of message. But instead, I want to connect it to the message last week, how we need the renewal of our minds by the Spirit because the battle rages in our minds most of the time. And how we view ourselves, how we, how we understand our faith. Because you know, when, if we're just walking around thinking, well, we're just worthless, we're sinners, we're ugly, and things like that, that is what we project to the world as believers. We ignore the state that we are in, in terms of being justified, being called his own, being his. Now, can there be moments where those things drag us down in our life? Sure. And it distracts from that sanctifying power. It distracts from the growth that we can experience as believers. You know, we have to, to live what the Bible says in terms of seeking the forgiveness that's already been won and living in the freedom that Christ has. But instead, many times we burden ourselves and continue to be staying in these pits, not living for him. Now, in this section, it gives a specific example for the sanctification that is being talked about. Let's pick up there in, in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses the and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, perhaps this is something that the Thessalonians struggled with and Paul is hitting it hard. He is saying, you know, let no one transgress a brother in this. So it sounds like, you know, marital infidelity is going on. You know, Thessalonica is in Greece, so it would have been heavily influenced by the Greek culture. 
the gods, the goddesses, and all of the rampancy that would go along with that. Um, so this was something that, especially before Christ, they would have this history of sexual immorality, of impropriety. And here I think, especially for our understanding as Christians, we have to understand when sexual immorality is used, it's talking about all forms. Many times we like to hit hard homosexuality, but it's everything. You know, it's not like in, Thess in Thessalonica they would have their own organized chapter of LGBTQ. This would cover pornography, marital affairs, premarital sex, homosexuality, prostitution, anything that deal with the passions of lust, the lustful desires that speak to our own selfish gratifications and pleasures, things that would be against the holiness and honor that is due to the creations of God. You know, when we think of these cultures back then, and we compare it to our culture today, there's not much difference. We live in a very sexualized culture. Sex sells and it is magnified. It's on a lot of billboards. I got a question last week. Dad, what's limitless mail? Thank you, appreciate that. You go through the big cities and you see the, the billboards for the, the nightclubs, the adult stores, all of these images that are constantly bombarding us. Things that are racy and raunchy that have ignored any semblance of a line that we might have had 50 or 100 years ago. It was before I was a teenager that I was exposed to such images, especially for men who are visual. Pornography is a very dangerous addiction. It is labeled as the new drug because of the addictive properties. It changes the chemistry and the brain. For Christian men and women, this is still a problem. Sexual immorality and lust for Christians, it brings shame, it brings guilt, it brings burdens into our lives because it causes us to be stuck in these patterns, to stuff things down and remain silent because we don't want to bear that guilt. We don't want to expose our shortcomings, our weaknesses. Or we maybe pray that we get caught because we don't know how to come clean because it is a taboo thing to talk about in a Christian environment. Worse yet, maybe we come out and want people to accept whatever perversion it is because we wanna make that the new norm, accepting our sin. You know, people who hate the addiction that they have feel, tra feel trapped because of the silent nature behind it. similar to when I was talking about a few weeks ago, about the fears that we have for public speaking and not evangelizing to those around us, how that is seen as a form of failing. In the same way, when we stay silent on issues like this, we are failing each other. We are failing our brothers and sisters in Christ who are caught in these traps because this obstacle allows us to stay in the dark with sin rather than living in the freedom of forgiveness that we have. You take a look at any of the statistics, and they're not good. 
a good average, I guess, would be about 50% of men in the church and 20% of women in the church. Whether that is visual images, which are commonly thought of for men, or the romantic novels, magazine articles uh, for women, or a mixture of anything in between. In the church, we have affairs. Our divorce rates are just like the world's. This is a real problem. And for people that fall prey to this form of addiction, have their ideas of love distorted to where everything is then sexualized. And we don't understand the agape form of love. And we just become silent. In this room, I think that we are smart enough people to understand patterns in history. We can point to the downfall of the Greeks and especially the Romans who got caught up in this type of living. Sexual immorality, when it runs rampant, destroys countries. It's a sign of godlessness and I think that it will be a leading cause of the downfall of this country. As Christians, we know the truth. We know what the word says, but we do not surrender or submit to it. We know that the Spirit gives us a fruit of self-control, but we don't follow the Spirit's leading. As with any addiction, it's hard to overcome because your brain chemistry is changed. But it's even harder to overcome when it's on your own. We have to live in a way where the Spirit uh, is constant in our lives, where we're relying on Him through those temptations. So I don't want us to refuse that fruit of the spirit of self-control. And more than that, I want to continue what we've been building on in terms of getting to that point in our relationships that we can speak honestly with one another, where we can receive encouragement and support to go through the hardships. And this is just one area. We all have our weaknesses. We all have our hang-ups. But many times we're alone with that. Many times we don't have those connections with people that we can talk honestly through and work through some of these things to grow in our sanctification. You know, and and part of that in our own walk is to have such a desire in our hearts and minds and a passion for the Lord, for his will, for his ways. It says his will is for our sanctification, to be more Christ-like. Do we have that yearning, that longing to be like that? where his holiness and our striving for that trumps any of the temptations that we would face. We should have a desire and a longing to be in his court all of our days, having our eyes focused on him and not this junk around us. Because as it says here in verse seven, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever dis regards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you I think that we need to contemplate these verses in our lives because the stats are alarming for the church we need the spirit to guide us in this area maybe doing a video series in the fall like we did with the truth project to allow people a chance to have some deliverance from these addictions And I can speak a lot more on that type of subject, but for now we need to move on. Move down to chapter five in 1 Thessalonians. 
verse 12 is the section that we're going to be reading. Now, this is a section within the final instructions that Paul has for this church. It is a, it's a passage that is filled with imperatives. So I think this whole section is useful to us. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Beginning in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So, we see um, in verse 18, the will of God referenced there. The normal interpretation is to link that to the three imperatives that are found in verse 16 through 18, the always uh, imperatives. And I'm perfectly fine with that uh, interpretation. There were a few commentators that only stuck that phrase to the thankfulness piece. Um, I think that that's kind of limiting personally. Um, but as I was reading this passage this time around within the context of sanctification, I looked at the whole section. Um, I looked at all of the imperatives within this section. All of these commands that includes be at peace among yourself, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, See to it that no one repays evil. Seek to do good. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecy. Test everything. Hold fast and abstain from evil. That's a lot of imperatives. So which one is the will of God? Adding to that, you have to remember with the original manuscripts, we wouldn't have all this lovely punctuation involved. There wouldn't even really be spacing in between the letters. You know, I'm not trying to confuse us in this matter, but instead I want us to understand and maybe explore some of these areas that's talked about when it comes to our sanctification. Because as we just read a little bit earlier, God's will is our sanctification. I think these verses here in 16 through 18 can kind of be summed up the way that Jesus sums up the law. When he says, you know, first and foremost, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these things, then you have completed the law. You know, in the same way, rejoice. Have a life that rejoices always, that prays always, that's always thankful. If you live a life like that, you're going to be in God's will most of the time. You know, I think for each one of these commands, we can probably have a separate sermon that speaks to these issues. But I want to just address each one a little bit and bring out some practical application. So the first one, be at peace. I think of Romans chapter 12, verse 18, where it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, as the saying goes, it takes two to tango. 
many times, but just being able to have an attitude of peace. You know, sometimes people have an aggressive attitude. They, they thrive off of conflict. They look for those things. So the word tells us whatever is in your control, whatever is in your power to do, be at peace with those that are around you. People might get mad. People might get angry with you. You can do what you can, but sometimes they just want to be angry. Sometimes they just want to be bad. Do not carry that burden. Do your best to be at peace. To admonish. To admonish means to warn. Kind of mixed in there with some encouragement as well. Warning those who are idle, those who might be milking the system, those that do not work uh, in strong ways. Uh, Many times we try to express this type of thing with our children, trying to instill in them a biblical work ethic, what it means to work for the Lord, to serve the Lord. Encouraging the faint-hearted. This is speaking to those who have little to no motivation. And it could be for whatever reason that's going on in life. Um, For me personally, it might not always be apparent. It might not always have gratitude expressed um, in the ways that I should. But there are many times where I receive texts of encouragement. Um, Things that happen when I'm down, when I'm lacking motivation. Whether that's because I'm in over my head with life or because I'm grieving with a smiling face. And the encouragement that comes through those moments lifts spirits. It helps those who are weak in the spirit, who are poor in the spirit, to be uplifted, to understand how the body is coming along and working as it should. And you guys have done that. So thank you. Continue to do so and more as we are the body and as we are improving our relationships with one another, to encourage each other as the Lord puts it on our hearts. Help the weak. Seems kind of easy to understand. You think of the weak as maybe, you know, little children that can't do things for themselves, or you think of the elderly, people that might need help. But you think of the weaknesses you have. And then you mix into it this attitude especially in American culture, because it is difficult to help people as they refuse help because they don't need it. Our pride, our stubbornness gets in the way. I mean, who wants to say that they're weak as well, right? It's a mentality that I think stifles the work of the Spirit to not accept help. Because from experience, if you are able to come alongside of others and see how God uses them to bless others, again, it builds up your own spirit. It bolsters your faith to say, God is here. Now, I've, I've had to be in situations where I'm unable to refuse help, even though I would want to because of my pride, my stubbornness. You know, I'm still, I'm still a relatively young man, and I can continue on through those things. I can push through. I don't need anybody's help. But you know, I think that we have to understand that weakness is not a derogatory term. Admitting that we need help, I think, takes some strength. And this is hard because of our pride and stubbornness. But we need to be clear in how we are asking for help. And those that are idle, those who are faint-hearted, those who are seen as being weak in this sense, The word is calling for us to be patient with them. 
because of that pride, because of that stubbornness, because of that refusal. We're patient with those um, because it's something that's difficult to overcome. The next two kind of deal with being on the lookout. You know, don't repay evil for evil and make sure that you're doing good instead. For me, um, this is one area that I need renewal in my mind specifically. I mean, I don't act on things often, but when things happen, when somebody does something evil against me, the thoughts that go through my head, oh, if I wasn't a Christian, you know what I'd love to do right now? So I need renewed to take those thoughts out to where I'm not going through these scenarios in my head of what I would love to do in the flesh. Whether that's somebody that's cutting me off on the interstate or somebody that's you know, doing something else that just would get me angry. Instead, I need to seek grace and what is best for that person. Having godly thoughts. Knowing maybe they don't know God. Maybe their form of lashing out is the only way they know, they know how to express anger. But since I know God, I can take that to the cross for them. I can bear that burden in terms of not retaliating back and instead show his love and grace, viewing them as he views them. Rejoice always. So these are the three always commands. And you know, practically, how do we live out and understand this term always? I mean, how can we always be rejoicing? right? It seems impractical. I think with rejoicing, it's helpful to reflect on that no matter what we go through, when our minds are renewed, when we're focused on God, even though we go through difficult trials, we can still see joy within them. I, I recall Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, if our eyes are focused on his glory, if our eyes are focused on that prize that is ahead of us, we can see the, the joy and the glory within those things. And it's not always easy, right? As tragedy happens, it's not something that's easy to attain. But through the work of the Spirit, through his sanctifying Spirit, we can do that. Pray without ceasing. I always love to use this verse when I'm driving. And people are asking, why are my eyes closed? <laughs> well, the Bible tells me to pray without ceasing. This is, again, more about a, an attitude towards your life, where we're having that prayerful attitude, where we're having that relationship with the Father. We're constantly in conversation with him, as two friends would have conversations together. It becomes a way of life. Giving thanks, again, very similar, because many times we can th take things for granted. Um, you know, when we're going through hardships, when we're going through trials, I'm sure gratitude isn't the first thing that's on our mind. But you know, when we go through those things, as the Spirit renews your mind, you, you begin to understand the thankfulness for the opportunity that you have to express and show your faith in those times, in those moments, through those hardships and trials that normally you wouldn't be able to show, to show that you are trusting in him as you take those steps to get you through that hardship. 
Do not quench the spirit. This, I think, is along with Ephesians, where Paul says, do not grieve the spirit. I think this talks about our unbelief, uh, where, as believers, we're hindering the spirit to work through us or those around us, where we're being critical, where we're being unbelieving, like a big bucket of water being dumped on a fire, quenching the spirit to work in and through us. One of the examples of this that follows is despising the prophecies. Now, we'll get into the definition of prophecies and how to treat what's going on today in a future sermon here. But here, I think, along with 1 John, where it says to test the spirits, shows that we are to test everything. And how do we do that? With the gift of discernment, the Spirit of God helping us through. Our standard is the Word of God. Are we holding to what's good, what's true, what is right, not partaking in the evil? I mean, this is is understanding that the Spirit's working in you to help you discern between right and wrong, where you're going back to the Word. You're filling your head with the Word of God rather than the stuff of this world so that you know what your standard is. And I love how this section ends. Let's look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I think this shows that we are still being sanctified. It is something that is done by God. Our our goal, our desire is wholeness. It reflects the same sentiment that's found in Philippians 1 where Paul says, and he who began the great work in you will be faithful to complete it. Of course, talking about salvation there. Paul is always good to call our attention back to the Father. Call our attention back to his faithfulness because that is what we put our hope and our trust in. His word is sure and we can be certain of what it says. Now again, how you want to view the attachment of the will of God in that section in verse 18. Um, For that interpretation, that's up to you. Um, I will still feel that it's very strongly connected to those three always commands. But through this reading, I'm exploring a little bit more in terms of the sanctification of what these imperatives mean in my life and, and how I need to be walking in these things. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the last section that we're going to be looking at today for the this is the will of God passages. I'll also make a quick link to a couple of things that Jesus says in the Gospels talking about how this is my Father's will. First Peter chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
Well, that's kind of a, a tricky passage, especially in today's political environment. Honoring the emperor. But the main part that's tied with the, the will of God is you do the will of God so that you can silence the ignorance around you. As Christians, I hope you are aware and that you understand that you are constantly being watched. You are being watched by everybody around you. How, you, how will you react? How are, what are you going to say? What are the things that you're going to be living about? You're going to be judged by everything you say and do. And sadly, those who are ignorant and don't understand will judge and criticize you those times that you mess up and forget all the good that you do. It takes years to lay a foundation for people to trust you, to say, you are a true Christian. You're not like those other people in the church because you're consistent. You continue, continually are there for those people and then they will go to bat for you. Um, you know, as it takes those years to earn that respect, we also have to understand when it's talking about this ignorance, it is within the context of honoring the emperor. And as I mentioned back near the inauguration, you know, do we only follow passages like this depending on who's in office? Do we honor our presidents? Do we honor our elected leaders? And how? It's just something for you to ponder. I think that the Truth Project articulated it better than I ever could in terms of understanding when we honor the emperors, when we honor the presidents or our governors, it's as they are doing the will of God, as they are honoring God. If, they, if they're not doing those types of things, then we respectfully disagree. Um, we, we understand that we need to get involved in governments. Staying involved and, and trying to sway some of the culture, trying to keep the Christian values within. But you know, many politicians will put on Christianity just to get a vote. I mean, you think about how many times we have voted somebody in to get rid of Roe v. Wade still there so we think about our leaders and we think about how we are to honor them we think about how we are to honor God first and foremost above all listening to what he says in the word standing up for justice standing up for truth and we do that with our lives we do that in how we are living and if you're bothered by the government as I said before get involved we need more true Christians within our American government, within our local governments, as we see what is going on around us. But as we are living as servants of God, we are to honor everyone. We are to love the brotherhood, that is the fellow believers. We are to fear God and honor the emperor. We are to stand for justice based on what God calls justice, not the next woke thing that comes across the news. And Paul continues to describe this a little bit with some emphasis on servants. But I think as we are all called to be servants, that is very applicable to us. So I want to continue reading here in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it 
if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, Jesus left us the example for us to follow in his steps. So are we keeping in step with the Spirit? You know, Jesus bore our sins on the tree, even though he was treated unjustly. He endured and entrusted himself to the one who does judge justly. Jesus says in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now Jesus is referencing the context in the Exodus wanderings when the Israelites were bitten by the snakes and they put the serpent up on the staff and they raised that. And as the Israelites looked upon that, they would be healed. We think of what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins. He did all of that so that we might die to sin and live righteously, as it says here in Peter, to live to the righteousness that we are called to live by. And it is by his wounds that we have been healed, have been completed, perfect. It is through the atonement that you are healed, that you are sealed by the Spirit as a believer. So live like you are healed. Live like you are made alive in the spirit. There have been many studies that have been done. And I have had many conversations um, with doctors, with nurses, where they see in their patients those that are resigned to death, those that take a diagnosis negatively, many times will trail in their health, sometimes ultimately leading to their death. Whereas those that are resigned to life, those that aren't even bothered by the diagnosis, live. I had many conversations with the doctors at UNMC. With Elaine, she was an example. They wanted to use her as a test. When she was first diagnosed, they shot out some statistics, averages, three to five years. We can help control the disease, but you're not going to get better. They were a little hopeful, but the surgeon was the one who was the most honest. He said maybe six months. There was nothing that he could do for her. And then within three months, as the scan showed that the disease was more than half gone, the doctors were puzzled. They had no explanation 
because it goes against everything that they were taught, everything that they have seen with their own eyes. What do you mean you're working out? How do you have energy to work out? You're, you're eating? How are you eating? It was in January that we met with the surgeon that at that point he realized, I can do something for you now. But we thought, we're healed. We don't have to worry about this. And then we had that conversation with him where he would love to do a study about how faith impacts healing. How the mentality of our minds can control our behaviors and actions. Our minds have such a control over us. The battle rages right here. This is why it's so important to have your mind renewed by the Spirit, by the Word of God, because it is being filled with the filth of this world, with the sexual immorality, with the impatience, with the anger, with all of those opposite things that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5. That's why it's so crucial to be in step with the Spirit to understand God's will in our lives. If it's just us, if it's just our way of thinking, then it becomes some form of moral relativism. But as believers, it is not just us. We have the Spirit of God in us, molding our minds, molding our actions into the image of Christ, into the holiness that we are. We need to live that way. We need to surrender and submit our lives to his will. Within the parable of the lost sheep, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, so it is not my will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And you know, I talked about this when we went through it in Luke. Sheep are dumb animals. I don't think it's a coincidence that we are referenced as sheep a lot of times in the Bibles. Sheep will eat themselves to death. They will fall in the same traps over and over and over again. And you relate that to our lives. You relate that to our sin patterns. And you see those similarities. But as Peter says, but now we have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. We have been healed. Our confident hope is what Jesus has done. So now today, as we experience his mercies anew today, as you have this opportunity to be sanctified for him, we need to submit and surrender ourselves to the holiness that the Spirit brings. For that is the will of God for all who believe, to be sanctified. Let us submit to keep in step with the Spirit for the sake of his will and doing that. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about a lot of these issues today, some of them are hard. Some of those strike deep to the core of our hearts because we know the burdens, we know the guilt that we carry. Father, I pray for a time of confession. I pray for a time that we can experience your forgiveness anew today, that you would pour out your grace, your love, your compassion, that as a body, we can continue to come together to encourage, to build each other up,
But Lord, we need to improve some of those relationships. So I pray for those opportunities as well. Lord, that you would just put a few people in our lives that we can trust, that we can have keep us accountable so that we can all be living out your standards and your will rather than our own selfishness, rather than our own prideful things. Lord, help us expose those areas in our lives that we are still living in that way, that we haven't thrown off the old self. Lord, help us to hear your voice amid all of the voices of this world that are trying to drown you out. Keep our eyes firmly locked on you. And I pray for the opportunities this week to live the holiness, to be your hands and feet, to serve others, to bring you glory. Lord, allow the Spirit to call into mind those moments that we are disobeying those imperatives, those commands. Help us to be quick to seek that forgiveness so that we can live in your light and your love and your truth. We praise you, Lord, for what you have done for us on the cross today. We praise you that you are God and we are not. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.